Hello, listeners, and welcome back to my garage and to this week's episode of I'm Frickin' Lonely. How about you? Staying connected in the time of COVID, where we're continuing to hear about how the pandemic has impacted the paths of people's lives. I'm your host, Sheila Nall, and I'm looking forward to our discussion with this week's guest, Kate Beck. Kate is the Vice President of Mission Advancement for the Greater Somerset County YMCA, although when we first started talking about doing this interview, she was the CEO of the Princeton YMCA. That transition will certainly be a part of her pandemic story. Kate describes her role as a nonprofit administrator and leader. Welcome, Kate, and thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. This is a treat. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, where to start? (laughs) Um, So I've often joked that I landed in my position here in Princeton. It was some form of fate because I actually grew up outside of Philadelphia in another college town in uh, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. I was wondering if it was Swarthmore or Swarthmore. Well, <laughs> Swarthmore. <laughs> it's even a debate in my family. Oh, I, I sort of, I kind of stick by the R because I find it a little bit pretentious to say Swarthmore. <laughs> but I know many, many locals prefer Swarthmore. It's like Worcestershire or yeah, Worcester. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't know. I always, I so I'm pro-R. Um, but I appreciate that many people are not, but that's, that's where I land (laughs) on that. Um, (laughs) thanks for clearing that up for me. (laughs) My pleasure. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I moved to, uh, Swarthmore when I was, I guess I turned four years old and my parents actually chose to live in the town. They had actually lived in a nearby town for a couple years before my dad took another job and moved back to the Midwest. And my parents were Midwestern. Mostly from, they lived their lives most, well, they met in Minnesota. But they chose the town in part because I think they were very drawn to its own kind of diversity. They loved the people they met there. There was always interesting things happening. Mm-hmm. Well, college towns sort of tend to yeah, lend to that. <laughs> That's exactly um, right. You know, and it was, I think, 1968 that we moved in, which, of course, you know, you can, you know, we feel sort of overwhelmed by events today. But I think at that time it was very overwhelming. Um, yeah. Yeah. 68. So, that was some critical. Yeah. Some critical time. A <laughs> lot of stuff happening. Yeah. So anyway, we landed there. And um, so I ended up going through the school there. It was a very small public school system. And so I was educated from pretty much kindergarten through 12th grade in a small class with maybe, I think we had maybe 80-something graduating kids in my senior class. Oh, yes, and that I is think small. Fifty percent <laughs> of them I had known since kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So, so they knew all your foibles. All of them. <laughs> um, where I lucked out, interestingly enough, though at the time, if you'd asked me that, I wouldn't have said it was lucky, When I was in, I guess it was eighth grade, my father rather unexpectedly took a job in Seattle. And so we ended up moving for my, I guess it was eighth grade. I started in eighth grade in at Swarthmore Junior High School. And we moved in October to Bainbridge Island, which is a wonderful, beautiful place, which is in Puget Sound in Seattle. Okay. And my dad's the plan was he would take the ferry to commute every day to his job. Well, that just and sounds so romantic. It sounds incredibly <laughs> idyllic. But for an eighth grader who had been accustomed to living in a small town with sidewalks and the independence to go where she pleased, when she pleased, to move to what felt like, I don't know, a gulag living on an <laughs> island where you had to take a bus everywhere, this was just a shock to the system. Oh, my. And I might add, as we all know, 
that age is not exactly fun if you don't necessarily follow the rules of fashion and such. So I looked really different coming from the East Coast. But anyway, it ended up being, frankly, miserable for me in many respects. But at the same time, it gave me a perspective that when my father, who was a little bit impulsive, quit that job and we ended up moving back to Swarthmore, I was actually back in my eighth grade class during the month of May. So (laughs) I brought with me, though, a new perspective Mm -hmm. that I would never have gained otherwise. And I think, frankly, it's what led to me having a deeper understanding of differences among people, also what it feels like to be on the wrong side, to feel sort of picked on and different, and also a level of empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, Something highly lacking in a lot of people. So consequently, you know, going back to my small class where, as I mentioned before, I'd known everybody since kindergarten, you know, it was sort of a game changer for me. And I made some decisions about how I was going to interact with my peers and my friends. And so that's actually where I started having more uh, leadership roles. I just decided to stick my neck out and say, you know what, I'm going to get more involved in doing things Mm -hmm. for my community. So that shaped me a lot. So while... So what kind of things rose up in front of you that you could pick to get involved in as a young person? Well, gosh, I think I, I was... You know, I ran for vice president of student council and was elected to that role. I was, oh gosh, I mean, I can't even remember. There were so many roles. (laughs) And I really went all in. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned a lot in that process. But what was interesting is then when I went to college, and I was very intentional about my choice of college because I really wanted to have a different experience again. So I opted to go to the Midwest. And I landed actually in St. Paul, Minnesota, where my parents had lived mm-hmm. at McAllister College. It's interesting. You went back. I went more back or less. <laughs> in a way, yeah. even though it was really all new to me. New to you, but yeah. Liked but your parents' roots. <laughs> my parents' roots in many respects, but I liked the idea of being in a city. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in a city. Yeah. I also didn't want to be on the East Coast anymore. Mm-hmm. So, but what was more interesting in hindsight is that I really didn't want to do anything related to leadership at McAllister. Oh, really? So I ended up focusing largely on my major, which was studio arts, which okay. became a passion. So that became a whole other sort of interest to me and an area of exploration. And it was sort of just a time when I didn't, I wasn't frankly giving to others. Really, Mm -hmm. I was really more focused on the creative process and learning. And honestly, and I was, I don't know if I was insufferable or not. I think people would have to tell me that honestly (laughs) now. But I mean, I was more focused on myself. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, a time of self-discovery, you know, it, it can benefit you in the long run. Yeah. So, but as a school, I mean, McAllister certainly is, as liberal arts colleges go, there's just a deep commitment to service and um, inclusion, and it's very international. And, you know, so in that respect, it makes perfect sense that I loved it, which I did, and I made lifelong friends there, and people whom I count as some of my best friends, closest friends to this day. So in that respect, it was also a wonderful experience but but it's sort of the two sides of my world mm-hmm. I see but you had you did say that you know as you were growing up your parents really had instilled a sense of fairness justice mm-hmm. public service mm-hmm. into your upbringing so absolutely so you just sort of carried that with you the whole way whether you mm-hmm. were pursuing leadership or art it still was part of your very much DNA so. yeah very much so I feel like it's sort of it's hard to shake it is it's <laughs> hardwired and, you know, my parents inst- instilled in me also just a passion and a love for 
music and art, sort of having that curiosity. And, and I always, you know, as I look back on them, they were kind of amazing because they didn't actually go to college, or I should say they didn't complete college. My dad went to the University of Minnesota and, you know, he just wanted to work. You know, mm-hmm. I think we now speculate that he may have probably had ADHD or ADD of the day and nobody right. knew what that <laughs> was other than he was just difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my mother, interestingly enough, went to St. Cloud Teachers College for a year, but concluded it was so boring that it was far more interesting just to marry my father and start living her life. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a lifelong learner. I mean, mm-hmm. she read more books than I knew anyone would read. I mm-hmm. mean, she was and she self-taught took, and t- took courses at Swarthmore and at the college. She worked there at the library her whole for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, they were just, there was always an interest in learning about things around them and the world around them. And they, they were mindful of what was happening on the greater stage. And we talked about it every night. And, you know, my father was the, (laughs) he would always prompt every dinner as we sat down as a family. And I have two older brothers. He would always open with, you know, what's new, strange, or unusual? (laughs) I love that. That's great. Yeah. He was asking an open-ended question before anybody knew that that was like the thing to do as a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then that prompted you to look mm-hmm. daily mm-hmm. at the world mm-hmm. and try to find those things. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, to rise to the occasion when dad asked that question, you yep. need to be ready. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, that's yeah. cool. That's and we also, it, 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 we talked. It was a really wonderful thing to learn from each other and hear what we, you know, I, I of course, with two older brothers, you know, I have my older brother is nine years older, and my other brother is five years older. And so, you know, we all sort of brought a different perspective and had different personalities. And But when we were around the table in those days, it was really a great way to, to just hone our abilities to make a case and, you know, interpret something and try to persuade and, mm-hmm. you know. And challenge. And challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh Yeah. So it was, I, we learned a lot, I think, around that table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned that you feel like you're dutiful to a fault. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a family trait that can cuts both ways. I mean, the dutiful is, you know, I think sometimes it's hard for us if we feel like we've made a commitment to something, we will stick with it regardless. <laughs> and sometimes Maybe that's, that's a Midwest thing because I'm from Ohio and I feel right? the same way. Don't make pro- empty promises. Yeah. Do not make empty promises. That's right. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. You follow through. It's exactly you stick right. with it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, so firm believer in that. <laughs> sometimes maybe, you know, when you're in a situation where it's time to raise the white flag on a, uh, and I'm just speaking about things like, you know, relationships or, you know, sometimes you got to call it quits and right. it's really rough for us to do <laughs> So, um, but in the big scheme of things, I think it's the better of Mm -hmm. the ways to be, for sure. So So. you landed somehow in Pennington? Yeah, so I landed in Pennington in part because um, of my dutiful nature. I was actually married when I was 33, and sadly that marriage did not work out. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe maybe I did wise up there. Um, (laughs) But um, I met my second husband, who happens to, um, who at the time was living in Pennington, Mm -hmm. and lucky for me, happened to live in a lovely community. And so... Pennington's great. It's a really great town. (laughs) It's a lovely community. Mm -hmm. And he was already living there with his two children, my two stepchildren, when they were younger. And his, he had been married, obviously, 
before as well. And we met and, you know, the beauty of the internet, it was early days. Uh -huh. uh, you know, we were the match.com. We we're sort of early adopters. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, it's a great it example. <laughs> we would not have met otherwise, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we were lucky. So that's what took me there. And uh, I worked in Philadelphia at the time. I was working with the Girl Scouts. And so oh, my best friend is avid Girl Scout. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. I should introduce you. Oh, Valerie. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> um, you know, there's there there's a squad for sure in the best sense of mm -hmm. women who are very devoted and, and committed to carrying on that tradition of leadership. And Absolutely. it's a great program. It's a great organization. But I was there at the time and, and uh, commuting initially from Pennington, which eventually got old. It was hard. It was just hard to make that That's trek. That's a long day. commute. That yeah. is a long commute for anybody that doesn't know. So I did yeah. it a couple of years, but then when the opportunity to work at the Y in Penny, uh, Princeton came along, it seemed to make sense. It was a good segue. So mm -hmm, Definitely. You mentioned also that you kind of, well, you know, let's maybe segue that into how the pandemic impacted sure. that. Because sure. you, you, you know, you... You said that you guys bought a little house in Maine or something? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that. an escape <laughs> module or something? <laughs> well, we've been going, yeah. So our pandemic story is so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I ended up working at the Y here in Princeton, where I've been uh, up until recently the CEO. So it's been almost, oh gosh, about f almost more than 14 and a half years. A Not long to time. jump back, but yeah. how do you turn an art degree, degree into... Yeah. Being a CEO at a Y. Yeah, really good question. Sometimes I ask the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how, um, well, how did that leap happen? <laughs> so, so the leap was this. So when I finished college and I came back to the Philadelphia area, I knew that I was not cut out to be a fine artist in right. that I did not have what it took to sell myself. Plus, I, I found... Not many people do. No. That's and it's very tough awfully to intimidating to have to put your own work out there and be scrutinized. And I just didn't have it. Yeah. I, and and I, I knew it. I knew that about myself. And the reality is I am organized. I have that left brain, right brain thing going on. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, you know what? I don't have what it takes to be a fine artist and make a life doing that work. However, I do love the field, so why not pursue a pathway where I could be around art and work in the field in some fashion? So I was fortunate to get my first job working at the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia, which was a great experience. It was, you know, small house museum and rare book collection. And I was fortunate that at the time, the director, a woman named Ellen Dunlap, who I think is still the head of the American Antiquarian Society. I don't know if she's retired, but just a fabulous woman from Texas with a great sense of humor and a willingness to teach. And I interviewed for that job with really very little to speak of in the way of direct experience. And she took a chance on me. And I was basically the administrative assistant. I mean, I was learning payroll. I was doing all kinds of stuff to mm -hmm. support this little enterprise. And it was a great experience. I mean, I delved into this weird, funny, quirky world of people who deal in rare books 
and also a, a beautiful collection of art as well as household, you know, just what you'd find in a home because the house had belonged to these two brothers who were book collectors and bequeathed it and it became a private library and then ultimately became a nonprofit. So anyway, that's how I kind of landed into the nonprofit sector okay. in the cultural side. And then, you know, I did that for a few years and had the opportunity to work on a fundraiser and got to meet Maurice Sendak and who was a trustee. Oh, it was super wow. fun. I mean, I got to sit, meet <laughs> wonderful people that, you know, he was a little crabby, but he was nonetheless, you know, it was thrilling to meet him. Um, and, you know, I'm not surprised thinking about his books. Yeah, he was yeah. But, crabby. but who cares? Yeah, I mean, right. he, was, he was so gifted and wonderful. Yeah, uh-huh. And so, you know, that was just a wonderful experience and it taught me a lot. And then I took some time off and took a little break before delving into a full-time uh, world. But I did, I traveled in Europe a little bit and I lived in Vermont for a bit, helping my brother, my older brother at the time, who had a, his daughter was three at the time. And so I did that and so I had some fun experiences, but then ultimately got a position with a girls' independent school in Dobbs Ferry, New York, which is now a co-ed school, a day school, so it's completely different. But again, learned a lot about fundraising in that year. Um, Had the opportunity to develop deep friendships with people that I maintain to this day. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, though. You say you didn't feel comfortable selling yourself, selling your art, but fundraising, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's similar in a way isn't it is it, it is I mean, except i'm selling a cause i'm selling mm-hmm. a purpose i'm selling a mission you can't take which, it personally <laughs> which is not personal yeah. first of all and secondly it's something i care about mm-hmm. you know it, yeah. it it's genuine and again that's where that sense of you know sort of purpose and duty and service and believing in what i'm doing mm-hmm. it, that definitely shaped who i am for yeah. sure How'd you end up in Princeton? Was it through Pennington? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I landed in Pennington. I was doing the commuting, and and I happened to see, well, it was through actually a a friend of um, my husband's or a fellow soccer coach of under under 11 soccer or something at the time. That's called networking. Yeah, networking. And he pointed out that there was a a vacancy at the Princeton Y for an operations director. And Mm At the time, I thought, well, you know, why not throw my hat in the ring? I had worked for a Y um, mm-hmm. for about five or six years, another Y outside of Philadelphia, too. Mm-hmm. So I had direct experience my with experience, a Y. Yeah, that's good. So, so it just seemed to make sense at the time. So I threw my hat in the ring and ended up getting hired. And that's when the crazy adventure began because the place was very much in need of writing the ship. Mm-hmm. There were some serious, serious existential things going on in terms of the finances and a myriad. So it, that would just take a whole nother time just to sit down and have a podcast about that. But um, it was a crazy time, but we were able to kind of over the next, oh gosh, four to five years with the help of the, the board of directors and just sort of steady as we went, we were able to kind of rebuild and get ourselves um, back on track financially. Mm-hmm. So, but then the pandemic hit, and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. So yeah. you said that uh, you were in the middle of trying to merge. What was what was the impetus for merging Merger. the Princeton Y with the Somerset? Yes. Y? Yeah. So good question. Excellent question. So YMCA's in particular, because they are so facility oriented, as you might imagine, they have a lot of physical buildings to maintain. Yes, I was going to ask about that. What, yeah. What all facilities are right. in this area. Yeah. Right. So, and there are Ys that are 
called Wise Without Walls that basically will operate in already uh, in, in uh, buildings that like schools and mm-hmm. utilize other spaces right. to operate programs. But in the majority of Wise are Wise that have their own standalone buildings and mm-hmm. so forth. You know, and our Y in Princeton is nobody's going to bicker over the fact that it's a it's a pretty worn building. Yeah, it looks pretty beat up. I've never yeah. been inside, but <laughs> yeah, I'm here to say that the inside is actually a nice surprise for most people because we've been able to do some updates that really do change the experience as you walk in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the it, it's just it's it owes us nothing. Mm-hmm. It was constructed in the mid '50s, and so the reality, though, for small independent wise and in RY up until. Just before the pandemic, our budget was about $3.4 million, which sounds like a lot from some nonprofits here in town. But the reality is when you have to operate a facility and right. you're paying utility bills and you have to heat the pool and you've got to account for depreciation and taking care of that building, it mounts up. So a lot of wise have figured out that we're far better served if we can find ways to work together and consolidate into one and have one executive team and operate branches. Mm -hmm. And Somerset has done that really well. And my colleague there, who is the CEO, uh, David Carcieri, has done a really great job of merging two of what had been independent Ys in Somerset County into one, and mm-hmm. then an additional Y from uh, expanding to the Plainfield community where, unfortunately, their Y at the time ran into some issues and had to declare bankruptcy, but David was able to work toward ex, you know, bringing programs back to the community to serve the community, which is great. But yeah, that is hurtful to the community. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the good news is that there's a presence there and it's growing and it's expanding and it's wonderful with the help of, you know, um, the volunteers there and David's leadership. So here in Princeton, our board had to do some soul searching to really understand, you know, we're always... Basically, we know in the nonprofit world that if you have a budget under $5 million, you will be always, as I like to say, chasing your tail. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's always something you're going to just, it's going to be hard to get to the point where you can envision and imagine serious growth. It's just too hard. Yeah. So we, as a board, had to do the analysis to really understand, okay, what do we need to do in order to take us to the next level? And we concluded that it was in our interest and the community's interest to basically put our resources together and collaborate so we could be in a position to think in a way that we hadn't been able to before. We could be forward thinking Mm -hmm. and imagine a bigger, more exciting vision for our why. That's fabulous. So the state of New Jersey should take a lesson from you, you know, and merge some of these townships for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, know, merger is such an interesting (laughs) thing. We, uh, and it's, again, human behavior, it's fascinating. I mean, people struggle with that. Mm -hmm. It is just, and, and I get it, and we all have strong emotions, and, you know, there's a, we, we're not keen on change, Though I think the pandemic has really done a lot while we're, there's no question we're all on edge mm-hmm. and there's obvious real mental health needs in terms of people's emotions and I feel it and other people feel it. But when it comes to sort of innovation, rethinking things, taking opportunities to maybe chart a new course, I feel like that there's been some benefit in shaking us all up a little bit. Yeah, that's actually been a common thread that we found throughout the course of this podcast is just 
changing the way people see things and think about things. That, I mean, at the end of the day, it means that we all have to get a little rattled. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to get a com- uncomfortable. Sometimes we have to grieve. We have to get, well, obvious for obvious reasons why right. people are grieving. But, you know, for me, there's an element of grief in that, you know, I've changed my role and it's a different role. Mm-hmm. And I'm grappling a little bit with my own, not a lot, but there's occasional moments where I'm like, you know, I'm used to being sort of the center of everything, and right. that's no longer the case. Now, there's some real pros to that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, but, you know, it's an adjustment. And so it just speaks to how we as humans... You know, we definitely like the assurances of structure and routine and, mm-hmm. and familiarity and all the things that come with, you know, we're in a groove. But of course, we also know the flip side of that sometimes with the groove is you can get stale. You can not take chances maybe the way that you should. So this has been for us, I think, organizationally, a really wonderful testimony to people's willingness to be open to change Mm -hmm. for the good of for the greater good yeah well the the hard part was I guess trying to implement that during the pandemic because you said that there were you know different programs had different criteria foisted upon them Mm -hmm. during the pandemic you know so you had to apply different criteria to the different programs and how the government communicate that right to you right and how did they monitor it or did they or not really so much but I mean it was you know obviously we wanted to comply and do our best but honestly at the outset of the pandemic that was just it was exhausting it was really you know the world kind of well we all felt like the world collapsed but from the standpoint of operating an organization like ours where we knew right at the out of the gate that there were going to be folks within our sphere and our membership who were really vulnerable. Right. And, um, you know, to try to figure out, okay, how do we downsize? And, uh, and sadly, we had to lay off, you know, virtually what I think it worked out to 96% of our staff. Yeah, that's what you'd said. That's, yeah. Yeah. That and, was not uncommon, you know? Yeah. And we had closed our doors just like everybody else did. And, but we hung on to, there was a core, there are four of us basically that we just had to switch gears and focus on where could we be of the most help to our neighbors who really were going to be struggling the most, you know, access to technology so children could participate in school virtually. Food insecurity Mm -hmm. became a major focus for us. Yeah. How did Um, you, how how did you continue to help those people and, and even communicate with them? So were they still coming to the building? Did they, how did you? So a lot of the, the folks primarily that we focused on were the families connected to two of our programs. One of them is called Princeton Young Achievers. Many people here in town are familiar with it. It's a program that up until 2000 or 2011 was a nonprofit on its own. And they operated three learning centers for children here in town who qualify for free and reduced meals and or live in one of the subsidized housing uh, housing communities. Mm -hmm. And the program was designed that the children who would otherwise, in all likelihood, have nowhere to go after school, Mm -hmm. or if they were going home, they're going to go home and watch TV or be on their own, Mm -hmm. that we wanted to, you know, they, the Princeton Young Achievers Program assured that they had a safe setting, they could have a place to do their homework, Mm -hmm. they had, you know, all of the things that come with a really good after school program. So the YMCA, we in essence adopted that program in 2011 when they were after the 2008 
collapse economically. They were really struggling. So it worked out great. We were able to bring them under our wing, and mm-hmm. it just worked beautifully. And so we've been operating that program for some time. So you kept that going through? Kept that going during a difficult time. With just four of you? Uh, oh, no, no. <laughs> well, well, we didn't run PYA per se, but oh. we focused on those families, yeah, that those okay. were the families that were going to have the greatest need. Mm-hmm. And similarly, we run a program, a youth mentoring program called ACE, which stands for Accept, Compete, Excel. Sure. We actually, the firm I used to work for was involved in ACE mentorship. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so arch- in the realm of architecture. Oh, in design. architecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, ACE was actually this little program, well, I shouldn't say little, it's got about 28 young people involved. And it's modeled on a program in Baltimore that inspired us called Thread, Mm -hmm. with the idea that you match up volunteers to a student to ensure that they're going to school every day, because there's a real issue around chronic absenteeism Mm -hmm. here at Princeton High School. So we were there. Yes, there is. And we were funded by the Princeton Area Community Foundation as part of its All Kids Thrive initiative. Mm -hmm. And we started the program now. Oh, gosh, we're in our fourth year. So the pandemic was our third year of the program. So there was this core group of students that we'd wor- been working with uh, along with the students in the PYA program. So we knew that we had to really take the four of us, two of our team members were basically, that's all they did. They were just focused on supporting them. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other two was myself and my, the at the time, operations director, who's now the branch executive director. He and I were just focused on sort of keeping ourselves going in the meantime, mm-hmm. to try to be able to reopen when we could, um, as well as raise money and keep us yeah, stay going. Com- uh, communicating with the community, right? You know, to bring right. in funds and, right. and support exactly. and, and let people know you're st- still there, even in, right. a, in a sort of a sketchy, not yeah. sketchy, uh, or just threadbare way, right? Right. <laughs> sort of. That just sort of hold us through to bridge us through until things could open yeah. up again, and yeah. so. That's kind of what we did, but um, we were fortunate to get, we received two PPP loans, so the first one meant that we could bring our team that back. Was, um, paycheck protection? Uh, yeah, the Paycheck Protection Program, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a godsend, and we were able to bring back our full-time team as soon as, I think, uh, early May, so it was basically about five weeks that they were laid off, and then they came back. Okay, that's and not too bad. Not bad, <laughs> and they were glad to be back, yeah, and bad. then we were able to pivot pretty quickly. And by the first week in July, we were able to open up a camp. Uh, we were the only camp operating, which was really important because a lot is... And this was 2020? 20. Yeah, wow. July 2020. And we had a camp in 2020. A camp in 2020. Now wow. it was with far fewer kids, uh-huh. of course, for with physical distancing and sure. we had to follow Mass, all the protocols. So, yeah, But it was essential because you had folks who couldn't work from home mm-hmm. and they needed somewhere for their children to be when school wasn't in session. And plus, even if school was remote, you had that issue. So that was important. And we were able to, to do that successfully. And then by September, 2020, we were able to reopen the facility on a modified basis. But to your earlier point, one of the most stressful things for us is that because there were a myriad of, of protocols and, and um, ways of operating in a variety of sectors. So the pool, the, the systems associated with the pool and the mandates and the protocols were different than maybe a fitness center oh. versus a childcare center. Right. Versus, so we operate in all of those spheres. So right. we had to, you know, oh my gosh, all under one roof. All and, and yeah, in multiple settings. So, you know, for oh, and us, they kept changing too. And didn't it they? Evolved, the criteria just it kept changing and changing. And, evolved, oh my gosh. And, and still changing. <laughs> right. And and I'm fortunate, you know, that I, or I should say, 
I, along with the CEOs in New Jersey of YMCAs, we're all part of an alliance of YMCAs. That mm. is an organized group and <clears throat> led by an executive director. So we are, in fact, coordinated. So we were able to support each other and identify the issues and work together to advocate and try to work with the governor's office to get a better understanding of how we could roll things out. So there were lots of advantages to having that alliance mm-hmm. and um, makes all the difference when that you have does. that. When you don't feel like you're alone, yes. have that support system. Absolutely. Really. Absolutely. And a credit yeah. to everybody. I mean, they re- we really were able to pull together and, um, you know, respond quickly and be able to get on track to be responsive to what were the emerging community needs mm-hmm. um, quickly. Um, And again, that speaks to, I think, both an organization like the Y, which has years of experience and really great people who are trained and deep roots in a community and know a lot of people and have relationships, Mm -hmm. because then things can happen quickly. Well, you said you had a great board, you had great volunteers. Um, Were the board and volunteers sort of with you throughout? They were amazing. Mm-hmm. They're just amazing. There are so many people here in town who are just remarkable human beings, and frankly, it's the best part of my job. We have, um, I guess at the time the pandemic hit, we had 16 board members or 15 at the time, and you know we met round the clock practically. I mean, if I wasn't, we met monthly, but that meant you know our finance committee was meeting regularly to try to figure out how to get us through this because it just everything right turned upside down mm-hmm. so you know they these are people who had full-time jobs who had families who were sure. you know doing other things and had other demands and had their own lives to deal with in the pandemic and the fact that they could make themselves available to us and help us do the thinking and ask the good questions and guide and cheer us on. I mean, one thing I have to say about the board at the Princeton YMCA is they have the best sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, These people are just the embodiment of sort of flexibility and good humor and a belief in the future and, you know, sort of can-do spirit. (laughs) No, and I'm not, it's genuine. They Uh are really good, good good-hearted people, Mm -hmm. wonderful people. And our chair at the time, Marilyn Rivera, who lives here, in town has just been, I mean, just unflappable, amazing, mm-hmm. just wonderful person who steered us through a good part of this. So well, to have a key. chair like yeah. her working side by side with me made, it was just a, a key in all of this, but yeah. also to have our former chairs available, you know, just who've been loyal and, and it just, again, I can't say enough good things about the people who've been our volunteers. They're really remarkable people. I think we all feel lucky to live and work in a community yes. like Princeton. Yes, we are for pretty, sure. Pretty lucky. For sure. <laughs> it's a very, very, yes, very yeah. fortunate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of real civic-minded people. A lot of civic-minded and, um, you know, caring people and uh, a lot of smart people mm. and giving people. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. So, you know, you said that the the you know, that the why has been your priority more or less through and through, that that's, that's sort of been your driver. But are there other things that you had something, said something about being part of the Garden Club of Trenton? Yes, my, my, my favorite. <laughs> I love that because you mentioned, uh, you know, yeah, a gar- the idea of a garden club does have a certain stigma. But yes. it's really, you know, I've learned from you and others that uh, today's garden clubs are full of advocates and yeah. activists yep. and People who work for change and betterment of society and yep. and the environment. Yeah, is that what yeah. you found? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I um, 
you know, I've been involved with garden clubs for quite a while and I do my other, I do love gardening and I love, you know, which makes not surprising. I think a lot of people who have a connection to, or an interest for, um, you know, making art or, or a passion for art, you know, working in the outdoor environment where you're, you know, creating beauty through natural means is, it makes a lot of sense. It's not uncommon. So I got involved years ago with a garden club in part because, and which, which is a typical story. I actually got introduced to it by uh, my friend, Christine's mother, Joe, who used to compete in the Philadelphia Flower Show. Oh, and wow. So That's in, a big thing. Yes. So in Swarthmore, <laughs> where there is a garden club, though it's not a Garden Club of America garden club, but it's um, a part of a federation, another garden club federation. The women I knew through my friends were were fierce competitors in the niches in the garden in the Philadelphia Flower <laughs> Show. So years I ago, <laughs> I, I competed with with both an, another friend at the time and my friend Christine, and it just opened my eyes to this whole world that I just thought this is fantastic. This is so interesting, you know, mm-hmm. to interpret themes using natural materials and the fun of the competition and the people you meet and the, mm-hmm. and the energy and so forth. So anyway, that's kind of how I got originally involved. But then as I started to participate in my club now, the Garden Club of Trenton, and be a part of a Garden Club of America garden club, mm-hmm. I got to appreciate again, much like the why actually, that there are these local clubs, these chapters basically that are part of this federation um, at a national level. And then the Garden Club of America actually organizes and drives a lot of the uh, work around advocacy and so forth. And and um, so there's just, there's much you can enjoy in the way of, you know, design and there's that part of it. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, you can be involved in advocacy. I just before the pandemic, in fact, I went to Washington, D.C. as our club's representative, along with several women here in Princeton who are part of a couple clubs here in town, and um, went as part of a a group to go and advocate to our uh, representatives about certain bills that we wanted to see move forward with respect to a whole range of topics in in the environment. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to be there among 150 women from across the country who were there with you know, and I should say, I don't know if there were any men there, but there are more and more men joining the clubs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just very powerful because, mm-hmm. again, smart, um, very passionate about, you know, preserving what we have, finding ways to move forward that we can assure that the next generations are going to have the benefit of, you know, clean water, air, um, you know, that we'll be able to preserve the open spaces that we all cherish, that we're going to be able to have the national park system that is just a gift to us as a country that we shouldn't take for granted and have to fight for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these are all um, things that, you know, it's easy, (laughs) though I do, I mean, I joke that, you know, the Garden Club, a lot of my friends in the club, you know, they're excellent entertainers. They can whip up a mean chicken sh- salad. They're like, they're really, but you know what? That part of it is also a joy mm-hmm. to be among friends and to be able to spend some time together and laugh and enjoy a beautiful table together and conversation. I mean, that's another part of of, of beauty. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a whole 
mix of that that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. So that's how I, I can I, see a common thread among, <laughs> among the things that seem to draw you because it's something you had said about the why too being a place where people can come together. And yes, that that's your vision for the why yeah. to yep. to have people have sort of a shared a shared sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which interest is really and hard to come yeah. by these days. Yes, you know, because everybody yeah. is so everything is so fractured right now to right. have, you know, to have a broad group of people come together as a garden club, yes. you know, but they're from all yeah. over the country and yep. they have different points of view and different right. experiences, exactly. but it's a common purpose. And I think that's something that we're seriously lacking mm-hmm. right now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's great to, to hear about that and to see your vision for the why in that regard as well. You know, you had said also that you were interested in that you follow politics. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, sorry, I'm segueing into the yeah. idea of silos yeah. that yeah. you had mentioned that, you know, that, Again, trying to find that common purpose. That yeah. That's sort of the key to bring us all back together. And mm-hmm. um, what is your hope for that? Because yeah. I mean, <laughs> you said I, you're somewhat of an activist against injustice and so forth. And I yeah. just was wondering, what, what, what's your hope? Yeah. <laughs> well, what's my hope and my vision? So, you know, for sure, that is my, you know, for me, what drives my passion for the why and what I can see for what a why, a, a really thriving why can do for a community is and I've seen it with my own eyes even you know in our building which again we agree tired in need of you know something um it uh, needs a, a new vision as a facility but separate from that I mean it is four walls at the end of the day right. and it's bringing people under one roof and I see relationships evolve that would never have otherwise happened mm-hmm. and I just feel so strongly that as a country that a big reason we are struggling is that there are so few places like that anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like there was, you know, certainly in the 60s with the baby boom, you know, there was a lot of investment in that, in those social programs and activities. There's just a lot more. I know I participated. Yeah, 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 you think about (laughs) it. I mean, there were organized activities Mm -hmm. around that. And it was the commonplace. That was actually, it was the expected thing to do. Right, right. And not that it was perfect by any stretch Mm -hmm. because there were a lot of people left behind and left out without a doubt. Absolutely, yeah. But the benefit of that is that there were places for people to congregate, to be among each other, to have interactions informally, formally that forge connection and build trust Mm -hmm. and that is what I think we so desperately need as a society again I mean it's so heartbreaking to me to see thing you know public school for instance somewhat under attack just Mm -hmm. the very notion that the public school system is not enough Mm -hmm. that that we and I appreciate there's alternatives but that is such the bedrock of who we are as a democratic you know democratic country and it's what ties us together and a big part of it and I and so that's where more than ever I see an organization like the Y having to take more of an active role in connecting people Mm -hmm. because we so are losing uh, that losing ground in that arena Mm -hmm. and I feel like the Y has an opportunity if investment is made there to connect people more deeply um, and and more organically. And I think that is something that here in Princeton could be just incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, I dream um, and, and, and hope for that there could be a time when we could imagine a new building on that 
at that location, mm-hmm. a 21st century building where everybody in this community would want to be a part of it. Because mm-hmm. right now, not so much for obvious reasons. But I think that for us as a community, which is so richly diverse in the best sense, mm-hmm. I mean, it's across the board, it's a age, it's socioeconomics, it's, you know, race, ethnicity, faith, no faith. I mean, it's all over the place. And and that's what makes this place really special to not have one. And the library can do that, I think, for sure, to some degree. But, mm-hmm. but in essence, a why would allow for relationships of a different kind to be forged mm-hmm. and it has developed. a broader offering. Right. The library is yeah. very... Specific. I mean, they have programs and so forth. For sure. And does really essential work, Mm -hmm. for sure. But, you know, we need to have more of that. Mm -hmm. And I think... Well, a a complete and Mm -hmm. functioning community has all those resources, like the Arts Council, the library, and the Y... Yeah, kind of work together, yes. you know, as sort of yes. a, an infrastructure, a social infrastructure, which I think you had talked about a little bit. Yes. And, um, we're blessed with that, but so many places aren't. And to find, back to building trust, mm-hmm. you have to have those shared experiences, even if your backgrounds are different. If you have some shared experiences, right, that's something to build trust you know, to base trust on right now that is lacking, you know, across this country, you know, people don't trust one another and they don't trust the government. It's just nothing. Right. Well, you can't trust your own eyes anymore. Yeah. You know, true. So true. So true. So yeah. And uh, and the idea of building a personal relationship too, mm -hmm. that you start to meet people who've had different experiences and that's the true answer. Yeah. Right there. You Mm -hmm. know, real Mm -hmm. personal face to face. Right. Relationships. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. And And I I honestly think, too, the other area where the why needs to do more is with young people. I mean, obviously, the name of the YMCA, uh, I think everybody knows, is, you know, Young Men's Christian Association. Right. Yeah. (laughs) The reality is that, you know, we call it the why. Right. It's, It's, but its roots are there. Yeah. But the young aspect, I mean, I do think that there is so much more we could do to support youth because I worry about young people, particularly with technology and the world of social media and the levels of anxiety I read about and, you know, giving them sort of um, where I, I just feel like the why has a bigger role to play. I don't know what that is yet, and I'm still sort of mulling that over, but I see that there are many ways that we could be more of a support as a organization to make, you know, a real meaningful difference and do a better job than we have. Um, you know, and, and organizations go through chapters and I'm, and I'm speaking here on a national level. I'm not just talking about our here in town, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that we, um, you know, it's interesting at the national level, we have our first female CEO for Mm -hmm. the YMCA. She just started, I'm hopeful that, you know, it will take us perhaps in a new direction. We are a federation, so it's every why is unique to its own community, and it's got some, you know, its leadership is unique. But, you know, there is that collective part that with, you know, somebody at the top leading us that we could perhaps see some new directions in a way to reinvent ourselves. Because the why has reinvented itself for many, many times. I mean, it's over 160 years old. So 175 years old, actually. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It's remarkable. So I I think we have many more acts yet to uh, in our 
in our uh, repertoire. So um, I'm just sort of interested to see how this is all going to unfold. And I look forward to being part of that because I think that there's lots of opportunity because there's certainly a lot of need. There is a lot of need. And, you know, actually talking to you today gives me a greater sense of hope just to think that if we get these national organizations that have these different branches across yeah. the nation yeah. and create a, a sort of a cohesive web yeah. of yeah. of kindred spirit or yeah. something, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you know, maybe that's part of the key to yeah. help solve our problems. If we I, I think so through outreach and yeah, I think know, so. I and mean, inclusion. I, mm-hmm. And and I do think you're right. I think we have to find ways to weave ourselves together and uh, strengthen the overall fabric mm-hmm. of society. There, and there are ways it can be done. I absolutely have faith it can be done, but there's no question that we've got to rethink things and, and, and the shakeup is as much as we'd rather in some ways not have it, uh, it's here. So I think we've got to forge ahead and find new ways to, to be with one another and support one another. And, and, um, that's, and I think the why has a role to play. Yeah. And now that we're sort of winding down with the pandemic, you know, the get back and be more yeah. community. And I think everybody's starved for that. So maybe, yes. maybe now, yeah. you know, related yeah. to the shakeup, yep. everybody maybe will start to flock to these community organizations. Again. I do think there is a desire for that and mm-hmm. I'm seeing it. And I think people are, um, if anything, COVID has put a, a spotlight on where we have some areas to strengthen. Mm-hmm. And I think for sure that that has come front and center and people consequently are, are longing for belonging Mm-hmm. I didn't mean that to rhyme. No, I like Maybe it. Maybe I'm onto something. No, I love it. That sounds like a really good, yeah, longing for belonging. Longing for belonging. <laughs> and, and, and we're all, you know, we all want to belong. We all want to have a place. We all want to feel valued and important and connected. And, and heard. And heard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have no doubt that the very loyal and committed members of our water fitness classes, the ladies who are there like clockwork in our pool would, would agree that <laughs> they feel connected and a sense of belonging and they feel heard and appreciated by one another. And again, that's a, a little bit of what I would say is the why secret sauce, that it's the why is made up of many smaller communities. And that's the beauty of it, mm-hmm. you know, that everybody knows one another and feels heard and appreciated. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, on that note, I guess um, we're going to have to bring it to a close. But I wanted to, you know, thank you a lot for sharing this time with us, Kate. It's really to do it. wonderful to meet you. And, you know, knowing that there are optimistic and energetic people working toward improving our social fabric makes me more hopeful. Well, thanks again. Thanks again. As ever, it's my hope that this conversation provides food for thought and that you'll tune in next time when we continue to share people's COVID journeys. And until next time, stay connected. 